Welcome to The Elephant, sponsored by the Climate Kick Alumni Association. I'm Kevin Kanners. For the very first time in the history of Homo sapiens, we are asking people of different cultures in different continents to climate agree. Climate change is a fact. All the evidence suggests climate change is to blame. The coastline of South Florida is going to be pushed considerably inland. Our politics, extreme events will be the new normal. About global climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Is to no one is addressing it. Time for talking is gone. It's we elephant. need other It is the elephant, elephant in the room that we don't elephant. want to talk about. So, last episode, we spoke to renowned climate scientist Michael Mann to learn a bit about the science behind climate change, the impacts of predictions, and how climate scientists studied the problem. But climate change isn't just about physical reactions, it's also about power. It's about power, influence, and politics. It's about how decisions get made and in whose interests they're decided. And so now that we have a basic overview of the science, in this episode, we want to turn to where we are in 2015 in terms of some of these human aspects of climate change and the growing social fight to do something about the problem. Now, 2015 is a big year for climate change. It marks the year where countries around the world are coming together in Paris for the United Nations Climate Change Conference in December a meeting where governments will once again try to come up with an agreement to reduce global emissions and hopefully come up with a plan to stay below the two-degree warming threshold, which the world has previously agreed is critical. But perhaps even more importantly, 2015 by all accounts seems to be the year that the climate fight on the ground is really picking up steam. Movements are growing, and everyday new challenges to the fossil fuel industry are cropping up, whether it's protests blocking new projects from being developed or through the divestment movement where institutions such as universities and pension funds are being pressured to sell off their fossil fuel holdings. Well, joining me first to talk about some of the social and political dimensions of climate change is Tim Flannery, an internationally renowned Australian scientist. He started out his scientific career as a paleontologist, and through his fieldwork, he helped categorize dozens of new species of mammals, a feat for which he was described by David Attenborough as being in the league of all-time great explorers, among the likes of Dr. Livingston. At a certain point, Tim Flannery became aware of the science of climate change, and although he was initially skeptical, it led him down a path of years of research. Years of research that eventually led to his 2005 best-selling book, The Weathermakers. In that book, he argued not only that climate change is a major threat, but that serious action is required. Thanks largely to his work of informing the public about the threat posed by climate change, Tim Flannery was named in 2007 Australian of the Year. He's played an active role in the public conversation about climate change ever since, and he's currently the chief counselor of the nonprofit organization, the Climate Council. I reached Tim Flannery in Sydney. Tim Flannery, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you very much. So this is a, a series that we're doing that's looking at climate change and looking at different facets of the issue. We're going to be exploring everything from the international politics to oceans rising to the, the debate over pipelines in North America. But with you, before we get into the specifics uh, in later episodes, I, I kind of want to get a, a state of the planet. And I was wondering if someone, say, fell asleep uh, in 1997 and woke up today uh, and it was your job to characterize kind of the, the moment we're in with climate change. How would you describe this time, this year that, that we find ourselves in? Well, look, if someone had fallen asleep in 1997 and uh, awoken in uh, 2015, they'd be waking up in a year 
of real decision-making, sort of the last moment of decision-making, I think, in terms of the global climate issue that we have available to us. In 1997, you had to be a scientist or someone, you know, aware of the issue, uh, someone rather unusual, perhaps, to understand that there was a climate problem. By 2015, everyone on the planet knows there's a problem. Uh, The big question on everybody's lips is whether we're going to fix it or not. Uh, Basically, what's happened is that over the last decade, we've been uh, experiencing the worst case scenario for carbon pollution. So as bad as it gets in any of the projections that scientists have done. And that's left us with an enormous overhanging problem and with no choice now but to put the brakes on really hard to cut emissions harder than anyone thought we could. Uh, And even then, in a couple of decades' time, we'll probably be scrambling to uh, find technologies and means of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere because even with our best efforts, it's likely we're going to overshoot the safety margin of of the climate system. And and in terms of staying under two degrees, can you talk a bit about that? Why is two degrees matter? How did this this number get decided on? Well, the two-degree number um, seems to have got made almost in the absence of thought. It, it was made uh, really as a result of scientists a couple of decades ago identifying increasing risk above two degrees um, and then it becoming adopted by politicians as the threshold we shouldn't cross. Um, but without much thought as to how much carbon need would have to go into the atmosphere to take us above two degrees... What we're seeing now with modern science and a better understanding of the Earth's system is that even at one degree or one and a half degrees of warming, we're going to be living in a very different world, uh, where at the moment temperatures are up about 0.8 of a degree above the pre-industrial average, and that's been enough to cause huge melting of the Greenland ice cap and threaten the Arctic ice cap and cause a meltdown of the glaciers of West Antarctica, which is in progress now. Um, A world that's one and a half degrees warmer than the baseline, the pre-industrial average, uh, wouldn't have a barrier reef, a Great Barrier Reef, for example. Most coral reefs are going to be under severe threat. Uh, Some of the world's great coastal wetlands uh, will be inundated, as well as the world's uh, coastal cities. So, you know, there's serious consequences even before you reach two degrees. It's just that once you go beyond two degrees, things get more and more catastrophic. One of the things I'd be curious to to hear your thoughts on is where we're at politically right now, because it seems in some countries like like Australia and Canada, it's been going backwards with the repeal of, of carbon tax and quite conservative governments. On the other hand, there's there's quite positive steps in, in some other countries. H- how would you characterize the overall political situation? Well, the political situation as of 2015 is really very different Uh, from what it was in 2009, which was the last time we really had a global effort at solving the climate problem. Back then, uh, a lot of the technologies that we needed to solve the problem were economically immature. I guess the threat from those who wanted to change, you know, in the eyes of the fossil fuel lobby wasn't quite as serious. Uh, Whereas this time around, what we're seeing is the fossil fueled industries fighting for life. They really are. Um, And they're fighting for life because the technologies that challenge them have matured and are now really cost competitive in an open marketplace, many of them. Uh, Things like disinvestment campaigns are threatening the fossil fuel industry. 
they're getting more and more pushback with uh, major developments. Uh, there's less and less profit in those industries for them. Um, they seem to have a huge carbon liability. Uh, at least the market is increasingly perceiving that to be the case. Uh, and of course, it's the year when we're coming together as a world to try to solve the problem. Many nations, if not most, are determined to broker a lasting solution to this problem at Paris in December uh, of 2015. How successful that will be is yet to be determined. We're seeing a, a very stark division. Some of the, the, the conservative countries like Canada and Australia are really fighting a rearguard action. So the gloves are off now in this fight, um, but I think we're really we're reaching the pointy end of the whole political process this year. Now, on the the question of, of Paris in particular, I mean, there's there's some debate among activists and, and environmentalists about how much these global treaties matter. Uh, a lot of people were disappointed with the failure in Copenhagen to have uh, anything binding come out of it. You you seemed a, a bit optimistic about it. On the whole, like how important do you think Paris actually is? Do you think if if nothing comes out of it, is that the end? Um, do you see it as having a lot of weight, or do you think it's part of you know maybe uh, ten or a hundred different factors that people should be working on? Well, look, Paris, in my mind, is very much part of a process, and that process began in 1990, really, with attempts to uh, set a baseline year for the um, the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, at the Copenhagen meeting, the world wasn't ready yet to broker a deal on climate change. There was a lot of goodwill, but we lacked experience and we lacked tools. And I saw that very close up as a chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council. We're finding that ambitions are slowly being upped that in negotiations and so forth uh, with leaders like China and the US out there urging others on. We're getting a higher level of ambition. So I'm, I'm optimistic for Paris, um, even though it's not going to result in a legally binding agreement. But I do see it just as one uh, step in a very long journey. The, the reason is that although they're focused on keeping temperatures below two degrees, there's no agreement on a carbon budget, for example. So we can't say to nations, you have X amount of CO2 to pollute um, before you're over your budget. We're not at that point politically, even though we know the science. We have the science in hand that allows us to do that. Um, you know, and as I said, we're coming to this very late. Even if we put the brakes on fully now, using all of the best technologies we have, I can't see how we will bring a carbon budget into being by 2030 that keeps us below two degrees or gives us a better than even chance of staying below two degrees. One one of the things I've found personally in thinking about climate change. It's kind of I've followed it on and off for for years now, but because it's so slow moving and in a way so abstract from our our day to day lives, uh, or it feels abstract, it it can sort of have this waning capacity. So we care about it on some days, and then on other days, it just in the back of our back of our mind, and it seems like that repeats itself on a national or community level as well. Do you do you see a, a way around that, or how how can we get that sense of urgency that um, it requires if, if we really do need to put the brakes on as, as hard as we can, as soon as we can? Well, I don't know whether we need that sense of urgency the whole time. You know, I suspect even if you were diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, you would still find time to think about other things. That's the nature of the world we live in and the nature of being human. But where you do need a strong focus on climate issues is at election time, when those who are representing you 
are going to be present at these negotiations and are going to uh, pledge on your behalf certain actions. So for me, it's a political thing. We need to see people more deeply engaged with the politics. You know, I don't want it to be top of mind 24-7, but we, we do need to have that focus in a political sense and also in an economic sense. So, you know, when you come to replacing your car or looking at solar panels for the roof of your home or um, uh, geothermal heating for your home or whatever it happens to be, it's at those moments where you're making a financial decision that will have a climate impact that you need to have it at top of mind as well. And to say, even though this option might be a tiny bit more expensive up front, um, it's worth paying that because in the longer term I'll be better off and the planet will be better off. Some people have made the point that those type of sort of smaller consumer choices of, of buying more efficient cars or or making our houses better uh, insulated and stuff like that, that 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 won't actually be enough. That in a way, what we need is almost a, a degrowth paradigm where we we have to learn how to do with less to to not have to be able to to consume so much and have a, an economy always growing. What do you think about that idea? Look, I, of course it won't be enough, but without those actions, we're not going to get anywhere. And could I just say that, you know, one of the, the great wins that we've had recently is slowly declining electricity demand in developed countries like Australia and, um, and, and, and no doubt Canada as well. And that's been due to the millions of small consumer choices people have made about buying more efficient refrigerators, putting solar panels on their roof. Um, uh, just being more aware of the energy they use. So, you know, those sort of things, they're really, really important and cumulatively they add up to a lot, but they're not going to solve the problem alone. We need a a price on carbon to start influencing large-scale investment decisions. We need to hasten the uptake of electric vehicles so that we can replace the burning of fossil fuels with uh, transport, uh, you know, uh, from wind and and solar and so forth. Um, Those sort of things have to happen as well. So we need to move together on all fronts. At the moment, the issue is let's decouple the economy from the pollution that traditionally has driven it, the carbon pollution that's driven it. Most of the G20 nations have done that. We're hoping to see China uh, follow, India follow, and then the rest of the developing world follow. And if we can do that, we'll have the breathing space or the time required to contemplate those bigger issues about how much growth do we want? Uh, is it compatible with a long-term sustainability or not? Unless we deal with that problem, we won't have the luxury of even asking that question. I'd be curious to hear a bit about your own journey with your awareness about climate change. I mean, it was it's coming up on 10 years ago now that uh, you wrote The Weathermakers, where you really became a public figure in this in this conversation. Um, but when did you first personally become aware of the science and, and start to worry about it? Look, I became aware of climate change probably in the mid-80s, I guess. I was working as a biologist in Papua New Guinea, uh, climbing mountains, doing surveys of alpine environments, uh, particularly looking for mammals that are unique to those environments. And I noticed that on one mountain after the other that I climbed, uh, the tree line was was moving upwards. You could tell the grass was being smothered under these shrubs around, around the margin. And I didn't know what to make of that. And I did a bit of research and realised that it was probably a, an early manifestation of a, the warming trend because the tree line's controlled by frost frost nights and so forth. So um, that was the beginning, but I didn't really think about it much at the time because I was really focused on the mammals and the mammal survey work I was doing. It was only probably 10 years or so later that um, I took up a job as director of the South Australian Museum in Australia 
and the Premier of the state asked me to uh, chair and uh, create two boards for him or committees of reference, one on environment and the other on uh, funding, science funding for the state. Uh, I did that, but I, I felt I needed to learn a bit to do that job well, so I went back and read the last two or three years' worth of Nature and Science magazine, trying to identify the key issues. And it didn't take me very long to realise that climate change was the big issue. And for a state like South Australia, on the edge of a desert, where water's a real issue, it was a no-brainer. Climate change was going to be it. So that was my light bulb moment, in a way. I realised that the whole world was wrong at that point. You know, I remember getting up one morning and having a shower knowing it was 30 degrees or so outside and thinking, you know, this warm water I'm taking a shower in was made by burning coal 300 kilometres from here, um, piping electricity down to Adelaide and then um, heating water with it very inefficiently at a time that the sun could do the job for us. You know, what the hell are we doing? So that was kind of the beginning of my personal campaign to decarbonise. I was curious how you yourself have been able to deal with writing the line between hope and pessimism on, on this issue. Because for myself, as a, an observer of it over, over the past few years, I, I feel like I teeter on, on either edge. I, I either am like, oh, no, we can perhaps do something. Or I go to the other end and say, oh, it's hopeless. And I, I've noticed this in a lot of other people, too, when I, I talk to them about climate change. Um, and I'm always impressed in, in interviews uh, I've heard with you. You seem... You seem to be able to ride that, that line um, quite well and, and not go to either extreme. I'm, I'm wondering how you've managed to do that because we had this moment uh, when your book came out and with Al Gore's movie and in 2007, 2008, it seemed like there was all this, this momentum and then it sort of dissipated for a while and maybe we're back in a moment again, I'm not sure. But I, I was wondering just how you yourself managed to, to keep going through those years and, and sort of keep an, an even keel. Well... Um... And that's a, that's a good question to ask. And I, I must say that I don't wake up every day um, with a balanced mind and at ease with where we are. I mean, sometimes news really throws me down. Sometimes I read some news and think, yeah, we're starting to win. Um, but I guess in my mind the whole time is, is that, that sense that the coin is still in the air. You know, um, we, we, we haven't yet crossed those thresholds. And combined with that, this sense that we can do something. Now, you, you mentioned that, you know, there was a lot of awareness in 2006, 2007 that seemed to dissipate and go away. I would argue that's not really a, a true reading of the situation and what happened. You know, what, what actually happened over that time was people became aware there was a problem and that, that was a big move. But then some really smart people went away with that knowledge and started developing technologies uh, to address the issue. You know, people like Elon Musk, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, others, you know, were, were in that same boat. And some governments started to trial programs like a carbon price or an emissions trading scheme that would lead the way for the rest of the world to follow. So while it may have seemed to have disappeared, it was more the case that people were really, really busy dealing with very specific aspects of it. And it took about a decade for that action to bear fruit. A decade on now, we've got the proof in hand. We know a carbon price works. We know emissions trading schemes work to drive down emissions. We know we can generate electricity from clean sources just as cheaply as we can from fossil fuels. Uh, and we're now building up to this second big wave, which is a much more confident wave than we had in 2006, 2007. Uh, this is the wave that's got the fossil fuel industries really scared. And, um, and we have to drive that home to success in Paris, 
to start on that downwards emissions trajectory to buy us time to do everything else we'll need to do over the next few decades. And if that seems like a daunting prospect that this is going to be decades long, um, really people should remember that with that process will come enormous opportunity. Um, huge opportunities for industries that are barely even thought of now, which will be employing, I think, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people into the future as we start turning waste into product we need and start drawing down that carbon waste and sequestering it uh, for the long-term good of society. So I'm really excited by that, that prospect. There, there won't be a day when we can say we've won. That, that just is not going to happen. This is a process. It's a performance, if you want, by society as a whole. And a poorly choreographed performance, I must admit. But nevertheless, it's a performance and one that I'm confident we can bring to a successful conclusion if we play our part now. Now, as you mentioned, you, you did a lot of work with mammals. And, and throughout your scientific work, you've often looked at, at very uh, large timescales. And I was wondering how that impacts your, your thinking of how we as a species relate to, to the planet. I mean, especially when you step back that, that far, I imagine it must look almost absurd, almost crazy that we happen to be in this particular time, even aside from climate change. Yeah, well, it, it, yes, that's entirely true. Um, I, I, am, I am trained as a paleontologist, so uh, I'm used to thinking about the millions of years. Um, and I guess it's both good and bad, you know, because... We, we know, if you take the long view, that the world goes through crises and extinctions. We know that 99% of species go extinct in the end. And I can see how tenuous humanity's grip is on, or at least civilised humanity's grip is, on, um, on life, on, on continuance. Um, all of that's true. But I'm also just engaged with an enduring fascination, I guess, with looking at our species I mean, here we are, you know, an, an upright ape, um, social upright ape, in the middle of forging the first intelligent superorganism that has ever existed in the history of the universe as far as we know. That's a fascinating journey to see us be begin to form this globalised, reactive, unified entity. And, and a lot of my hope for the future is in that, you know, is in, in, in this idea that we can work together as a species. Uh, in new and innovative ways, that new forms of governance are going to emerge over the coming century, that, that new ideals, new conventions um, can be brought to bear in a species like ours that haven't really existed or prevailed in the past. So I find that, in the long-term view, really, really fascinating. It feels to me almost as if planet Earth is coming to consciousness or awareness. You can almost see the planet's brain start to form as we as a species start acting in concert in ways that uh, may benefit the planet. And that, that is so fascinating. Um, and along with that, you know, what our technologies are giving us is a, a sensory appreciation of the planet that we've never had before. We now have monitors and buoys in the deep oceans telling us of the temperature there. We have a better understanding than ever before about all of the layers of rock between the surface and the Earth's core. We know in exquisite detail what's happening with the atmosphere. So we are plugging in this emerging human brain into a nervous system that's letting us understand the planet's metabolism and the way the planet works and the way its chemistry works. And that is just awesome. It's just fascinating to see that uh, emerge in our lifetimes. I think it's one of the greatest gifts uh, that this generation has. And you recently became a, a father again. And I, I heard you say somewhere, 
um, that drives it home of how this does matter. This 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 is a very real thing. Even if the worst effects of it will come uh, in a few decades, it really is connected to the here and now. And you made an interesting point of wondering how the young people uh, in a few years, of teenagers in a few years from now, will conceive of the future, conceive of their relationship to their elders and and to the world around them, if there is no future in a way, if if we didn't take the action that was required on climate change. And I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that. Sure. Look, uh, my little Bubs is now, he's nearly two years old. Um, you know, he's got a very good chance of being alive in 2100. And if you look at the current trajectory we're on, um, you know, it, the place is going to be an unmitigated disaster by then, four degrees warmer than it is today. We just can't let that happen. Uh, and a lot of people who are older than, than my son, who are now in their mid-20s, they look at the current situation with disbelief. And they say, you know, can you really justify this catastrophic outcome just because some oligarchs and some multinational companies want to increase their billions of dollars that they make every year? Is that really what the world's about? Is that what my world's about? Um, and, you know, I'm glad to hear them ask those questions because the answer clearly and emphatically is no. We need to change. We need to change climate change. We need to change the power balance. We need to change our politics. Uh, we need to do all of that in order to get onto a more sustainable and fulfilling path. So um, the young people get it. And I think that they will deal harshly with us unless we play our part in doing that. Um, they'll either say we're incredibly stupid not to have got it or we were deluded or self-interested. And um, I, I, I don't want to be judged that way. Uh, I think I want to be part of that change. And I think a lot of people, older people do, uh, even if they struggle with ways uh, to be able to, to actually achieve that. I mean, you've talked about how you grew up with the assumption, I think uh, most of us throughout the 20th century did, with uh, the assumption that things will only get better. And, and that seems to have mostly disappeared now. Well, I think that was the biggest shock that I had over the last decade talking with young people. Um, it was universally accepted uh, in my generation and probably the one after that things would only get better. I mean, we were fed on comic, you know, cartoons on television, things like Jet Jackson that showed some space age world, you know, and, and, and some uh, much, much better world. Um, and all sorts of science fiction that did reinforce the same message. But so many young people today uh, think the world is just going to get worse. And, and that's the in their gut. That is their sense of the world. And it's a terribly dismaying thing. I mean, I think the last time people felt like that probably was in the late Roman Empire, when you know you, you read of uh, Ovid and others talking about the Golden Age and um, and the fact that this this Golden Age is slipping from our grasp and each generation is getting worse and less competent than the one before it. Uh, I don't want to leave my kids with that sort of legacy. I, I want them to have hope and optimism for the future. And I think they can. But, you know, we need to start winning this battle. We need to start inspiring them with confidence, uh, with practical on-ground experience and with the figures. We need to see that emission stream go down and go down quickly in order to start giving confidence to that generation that we're on a better pathway. Ten off. I mean, through this series, we're going to be to be looking at climate change from a myriad of different perspectives, different stories. It's all around the world, uh, in different communities, on the micro level to the macro level. And I was curious, like, if you were outside of the debate somewhat, if you were, you know, that paleontologist or an anthropologist from Mars, uh, following uh, the climate change situation, 
what sort of stories, what sort of questions are are you most fascinated by? Are you going to be keeping your eye uh, most closely on the, the coming months and years? Wow, that's a really big question. Um, I think as an outsider looking in, I would be looking at the cohesion of our, us as a species. How are we dealing with global issues? And climate change is just one of them. But can we forge agreement on the basis of our fundamental humanity that we need to change our ways in certain things. Uh, the other thing I'd be looking at is intergenerational equity. Um, how do we wrestle power and uh, authority from an older generation that a privileged part of that generation that grew up um, thinking that, um, what would I say, well, the digging up fossil fuels was an honourable profession. <laughs> and that making billions of dollars was uh, the be-all and end-all of life. Um, so there's some of the really big things I'd be looking at. The other things I'd be looking at are technology. How quickly is it changing? Um, I'd be looking at uh, equality across the globe. Um, where the poorest people on the planet today, where are they going to be sourcing their power from 10, 20 years from now? Um I know they're kind of they may seem to be issues that dance around the edge of climate change, but in some ways they're fundamental to our success or failure. And and, and just my, my final question, I mean, what about to citizens who are, are really worried about about this issue? I mean, in some ways it can seem so so meaningless or um our contribution that we can make can seem quite trivial or even even abstract, especially if we have uh, day jobs that have nothing to do with with climate change or engineering or education or anything like that. What would you just say to to those people who don't quite know how they can fit in with making the right moves? Well, I'd I'd say that there's probably few things more corrosive than um, feeling helpless uh, in a situation where you're deeply worried, and the only way of dealing with that really is action. Is 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 taking action trying to find out how you can do it and then acting on it because with that comes a sense of empowerment and that dispels uh, a lot of that that worry and and you're becoming part of the solution i mean in the longer term it may only be a tiny bit but each one of us is only a tiny bit um, and the world needs us all to do something you know one of the arguments in australia for us not taking action on climate change is people say oh, we're only one one and a half percent of the global emissions stream you know why should we bother doing anything well we're the 13th largest polluter on the planet so there's a whole lot of tinies that have to get together and do something it's true not just of nations but of people and if we all do i i'm confident we'll get there we we will uh, do the best job we can and hopefully by 2050 start seeing that we're getting on top of this problem well tim flannery thanks so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure thank you that was Tim Flannery, award-winning scientist, author, and chief counselor of the Climate Council. He joined me from Sydney. Now, as you heard Tim argue, the political fight over climate change is heating up. And it's essential that people get involved in the politics and create social pressure to do something about climate change. And there might be no figure who's been more influential and active when it comes to doing just that than Bill McKibben. A journalist, author, and activist, Bill McKibben has been involved with climate change but as long as anyone in America, at least anyone who's not a climate scientist. In fact, he wrote the first book on climate change for a popular audience with the publication of The End of Nature, released in 1989. 
But it was in 2007 that McKibben's involvement with climate change turned into a very public and full-fledged dedication when, with a group of students from Middlebury College, he founded 350.org, a climate change organization dedicated to creating a grassroots movement to dismantle the influence of the fossil fuel industry. The organization's name refers to a finding by one of the world's most respected climatologists, James Hansen, formerly of NASA, that the safe upper limit for atmospheric carbon dioxide is no more than 350 parts per million. The number we're currently at is 403. Since it began, 350.org has quickly grown into one of the most exciting and influential climate change organizations in the world, with community chapters in almost every country. And to give you a sense of their impact, it was largely 350.org that helped to organize the climate change march in New York last September, in which over 400,000 people took part. It's also been 350.org that has been spearheading the divestment movement, and which took the Keystone Pipeline in North America, which would transport dirty oil from the Alberta tar sands down to refineries in the American Gulf, from an obscure infrastructure project, one that was almost certainly going to be approved, to something at the center of the climate fight. I reached Bill by phone at his home in Vermont. Well, Bill McKibben, welcome to The Elephant. It's very good to be with you. Uh, now, this is our inaugural episode, actually. We're going to be doing a series looking at various facets of climate change, some of the battles going on, uh, some of the effects, and delving into different areas of the issue. But what I wanted to do with you specifically before we, in the series, get into all these different chapters was to talk a bit about the the movement, that where we're at in terms of the social fight to do something about climate change, because you've been front and central in that. Now, you wrote not too long ago in The Guardian, something along the lines of, it's not as if we're winning the climate fight, but we're not losing it the way we used to. Could you tell me what you mean by that? Sure. Well, you need to remember that I've been at this a long time. I wrote the first book about what we now call climate change, what we then called the greenhouse effect, came out in 1989. So I've had a long time to kind of watch the ebb and flow of this fight. And for most of that time, we've really gotten nowhere. I mean, there have been a few exceptions. Uh, a couple of countries that have taken this issue seriously and demonstrated some of what can be done. Germany's probably the best example, and Scandinavia. But for the most part around the world, uh, carbon emissions have just kept steadily climbing at an accelerating pace, and our governments have done little or nothing. Uh, the U.S., where I live, has had a you know, 25-year bipartisan effort to accomplish nothing, which has been entirely successful. For a long time, we thought that the reason for that was that we needed to keep winning the argument that we'd already won, the scientific argument about climate change. By 1995 or so, the world scientists were in firm agreement that this was a terrible problem that was going to cause the greatest crisis human beings have yet faced. And people kept going to our legislators around the world and telling them that and getting nowhere. So at a certain point, some of us began to understand that it was less about winning the argument and more about winning the fight. And that the reason that we were losing was that there was another side to this fight. And that side was the richest industry on earth, the fossil fuel industry, and that their money and hence their political power had been sufficient to make sure that we... Uh, never changed. And that's when we began really starting to organize. We knew we'd never outspend the fossil fuel industry. So we had to find different currencies to work in. And, and the only ones available were the currencies of movements, you know, passion, spirit, creativity. 
sometimes the willingness to spend our own bodies. And so that's what we have begun to do in many forms and guises and organizations around the world. Uh, 350.org, which I helped found, is maybe the best global example, but there are people everywhere in this fossil fuel resistance. And their work has, at this point, begun to really tell on the fossil fuel industry. Every new plan for expansion is challenged, fought, delayed, in many cases beaten. Uh, The cost of doing business goes up and up and up. More to the point, uh, people working on projects like fossil fuel divestment have been able to get across the essential truth about uh, our predicament that the fossil fuel industry has five times as much carbon in its reserves as any scientist thinks we can safely burn. And that's been enough to begin delegitimizing this industry, not just with environmentalists, but there are now warnings coming from the World Bank and the Bank of England and and a thousand other places about this carbon bubble. Can you just explain that for a second, like the math behind your article in Rolling Stone and the fact that we can't burn what the oil companies say they currently have in reserve? Yeah, absolutely. It's a just basic, simple problem in mathematics, you know. Scientists know about how much more carbon we can burn to keep us from going past a temperature increase of greater than two degrees Celsius, which the world has agreed. The only thing the world ever agreed about climate change was that that was the red line that we wouldn't go past. We can burn on the order of 500 gigatons more carbon and stay below that two degree level. The problem is that the fossil fuel industry has like 2,800 gigatons worth of carbon in their bank already, all the coal and gas and oil that they've discovered and announced they're going to burn. And if they carry out their business plan, the planet tanks. This is obviously bad for, for environmental reasons, like we've only got one planet. And it's also bad for financial reasons. It's a bubble, in other words, like, say, the housing bubble that helped bring down the world economy in 2008. There were more houses than people needed in parts of the world where they'd loaned huge amounts of money to build them. And so their value began to fall. If we ever decide to try and meet that two degree temperature target, then you have to cut the valuations of these fossil fuel companies in half. That's why they work so hard to make sure that we never will do anything about climate change. But that's, you know, those things, this constant protest, this delegitimization, Those would present difficult but manageable problems for the fossil fuel industry were there not something else also going on on the planet. And that is the absolutely breathtaking fall in the price of solar panels. Uh, They've fallen 75% in the last six years, 98% in the last 40 years. They're now a commodity item. They're in many places in the world the cheapest way of generating electricity electricity that, among other things, we can increasingly use to drive cars if we need to drive cars. And what that means is that the fossil fuel industry is being undercut from the other side, too. And we've got them in a kind of pincers movement, and that's a good thing because they are a, um, they're a bad news operation, the fossil fuel industry. Now, something I've heard you talk about, the movement before the past few years where it's become more active was the sense that it was about light bulbs. It was about making these small consumer decisions rather than what you've said it's about now is about power. Yes, that's right. So for a long time, environmentalists focused on small things that ordinary people could do, which was 
entirely okay. I mean, the roof of my house is covered in solar panels. I drove the first hybrid electric Ford in the state of Vermont. I'm all for making those kind of changes. But I also try not to fool myself that that's how we're going to stop climate change in the time that physics has provided us. That climate change is a structural systemic problem. It's rooted in the power of the fossil fuel industry, above all in their ability to avoid having to pay the cost that carbon exacts on the environment. Uh, they get to pollute for free. And so any answer to climate change that is going to matter in terms of the time that we have is also going to be structural and systemic. That means changing senators, not light bulbs. It means changing the rules under which we operate, not how we operate within those rules. I always tell people that you know the three things you need to do are one, organize, two, get together with your neighbors and organize, you know, three, go right on Facebook and do some organizing there too. Four, if you've got some time left over, then by all means, change your light bulbs. We set up groups like 350.org in order to make that organizing accessible and easy for people all over the world. And we've been successful. We think we've organized about 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. Could you talk about the current actions specifically? The two main ones, I suppose, the main actions that you and 350.org have been associated with is the fight against the Keystone XL and the divestment movement. Could you just talk a bit about those, maybe the Keystone first? How did, how did that come about? Well, the Keystone pipeline fight is, we're actually fighting bad, dirty energy infrastructure projects all over the world and of every kind, you know, big coal mines in Australia, coal ports on the northwest of the United States, fracking across Europe, you name it. But um, the Keystone became the most famous fight in a certain sense because it was early and in another sense because it intersected with U.S. presidential politics and so everyone was paying attention. In 2011, Jim Hansen at NASA, the greatest climatologist in the world, put out a little paper saying, People might want to pay attention to these tar sands up in Canada because they have so much carbon in them that if we pumped all the economically recoverable oil out of there, it would make it impossible to ever balance the planet's climate books. It would, as he put it, be game over for the climate. Same is true of you know the Galilee Basin in Australia, the huge coal mine, or uh, the tar sands of Venezuela, or a bunch of other places. But this one, uh, you know, they were trying to build the first really big pipeline out of it, and they needed a presidential permit. And though everyone told us we had no real chance of winning, we decided we'd give it a shot. Um, and so far, this coalition of activists and scientists and ranchers and farmers, and especially indigenous people, First Nations people, have managed to hold their own. And it's been kind of beautiful to see. It involved at the beginning the largest civil disobedience action about anything in the United States for about 30 years. And those 1,200 people who went to jail were able to start reframing this debate for the moral question that it should be. Four years on, the pipeline's still not built. We don't know how it's all going to come out, but um, we've kept 800,000 barrels of oil, the dirtiest oil in the world, in the ground every day for the last four years, so worth a few nights in jail. And and what about the divestment movement? Could you tell me about how that came about? Yeah, the divestment movement really um, grew out of this article I wrote for Rolling Stone about that new math of climate change that I was describing before, the fact that these companies have 
five times as much carbon in their reserves as we can afford to burn. And once you know that, then these become rogue companies, not normal companies. Um, we have to prevent them from carrying out their business plan. And so as with apartheid in South Africa 30 years ago, one of the ways to do that, to try to break their power, is to get valued institutions to withdraw their imprimatur from these groups, to stop investing in them, to say that they're off-limits and out-of-bounds. And so far, that's been very successful. Oxford University says it's the fastest-growing anti-corporate campaign of its type ever. And, you know, as I said before, it's already taken this issue of stranded assets and the carbon bubble and stuff and injected it into the middle of the conventional wisdom. It's not me and Rolling Stone now. It's people in, you know, the World Bank and, and the Bank of England and whatever. And one of the ways of doing that is so many places have decided to join in and divest. Some of them, colleges and universities in the states, places like Stanford uh, or around the world, uh, Sydney, Scotland, where Glasgow has divested, uh, and now Edinburgh, many places around the world, lots and lots of religious groups, the World Council of Churches, the United Church of Christ, but also places that one might not have initially expected. Maybe the most important moment so far in this fight came in September, the same day that we had 400,000 people marching through the streets in New York, that evening, the Rockefeller family announced that they were divesting all their philanthropic institutions from fossil fuel. The first family of fossil fuel announced that it no longer thought it was moral or prudent to be invested in this stuff. And that was um, that was an amazing moment. I think in a way, that moment marked the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel age. And the question is whether we can bring it to an end before we do absolutely impossible damage to the earth or not. And that remains an open question. You know, I know more than I would like to about the science of this stuff, really. One of the most interesting and, I guess, for me, despairing battlegrounds in the climate fight is, is Congress. And I think it illustrates so well how it's, it's all about power, too. You, you said that uh, what I never could have predicted was that one entire political party was going to give itself over to climate change denial. W what do you think happened? Like, uh, climate change used to at least have some semblance of being a bipartisan issue. Oh, well, I mean, it's very simple. The fossil fuel industry just purchased one political party and terrified the other one. I mean, the Koch brothers, who are the richest man on earth taken together, are going to spend $900 million on the next federal election. They're going to spend more money than the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, the Koch brothers' party of two. That money will all go to Republicans. They call the tune. So if they say that we're going to deny the existence of climate change and prevent anything from happening, then they win. I mean, for me, it's so scary because, I mean, for I'm sure everyone, it's so scary because the United States is such a big player. And so really, you know, a huge part of the fight comes down to who's who gets elected to Senate and who gets elected to the White House. That's correct. But, uh, you know what, I mean, the Democrats really didn't do very much when they ran things either. Um, some of them are bought, but more of them are just terrified by the fossil fuel industry. So we have to figure out ways to work around the fact that Congress is inert. And increasingly, we can do that. And one of the good things of the moment is the rapidly falling price of solar panels <clears throat> rechanges, rejiggers the game in certain ways and to our advantage. And at any rate, 
even the Republicans, even where can't stand up to a change in the basic zeitgeist of the country or the planet. That's what movements really are best at doing. We've watched it with gay marriage. You know, once a movement sprung up that changed how people thought about it. Uh, now even the Republicans are all eager to show that they're not bigots anymore, and so on. That's what's beginning to happen here with climate change. It'll be harder because there's way more money on the other side than there was in something like gay marriage. But it's uh, on the other hand, we've got the greatest single educator there is, Mother Nature working to illustrate our folly day in and day out. And with each passing week, more people get the message. I mean, California is in a drought so deep that it will not come out of it the same place that it was before. Uh, And that helps people understand what the stakes are. I'd be curious to hear about your own personal journey. I mean, because you wrote The End of Nature, what was it in 1989? It came out in 89. So I wrote it in 87 and 88, I guess. I mean, it must feel so strange in a way to have been talking about this for so long and to have been thinking about it for so long and, and for the start being relatively uh, alone or for huge swaths kind of uh, thinking about yes. it on your own. What was that like? Well, yes, there was some of that feeling of that you get when you have a nightmare and you're trying in the nightmare to alert everybody else around you to this you know, horrible creature that's charging down the street or something and you can't make yourself heard. Um, there was some of that. I mean, not that I can complain. The book was came out in 24 languages and was a bestseller in many of them and so on. Um, but it didn't, you know, and no book ever does by itself change uh, the equation, especially when there's this much money at stake. But it did help one of the many things that helped at least bring the debate into being. And um, on we've gone. Um, I, I, I wish that I'd known earlier on that it was going to take sort of movement building to to carry the day. I kind of kicked myself for not figuring that out sooner and going to work sooner. But it's possible that the ground wouldn't have been ripe sooner for this kind of work. Uh, I heard you say you, you were left feeling, I mean, understandably, really depressed after after writing that book and for a couple of years were in a, in a funk. Yes, living with the science and stuff for a couple of years was is very depressing. And if I have an advantage at this point is that I've gotten through most of my angst about it all and now just wake up wondering what I can do each day to, to work on it. And um, I've accepted that we're going to be some bad damage done and accepted also that we can, uh, if we fight, keep it from being any worse than it needs to get. Was was coming to that terms? I mean, basically having to write off the the sense of stability that that I guess we once had that like things are okay or, or will continue to be okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's one of the. I think you put your finger on one of the great losses. Uh, you know, one of the things that is really psychologically helpful for human beings is a sense of stability and security. And there's always been a kind of even amidst the kind of chaos of the 20th century. Uh, there's, you know, the incredible upheaval and change and things, the new technologies and new ideologies and things rot in people's lives. There was at least the background physical stability of the planet to count on, you know, as long as we've known this planet, the, the Holocene, the last 10,000 years, the temperature and hence the 
the, its operations have been remarkably stable. If your grandfather, grandmother could grow corn in a certain field, then you know your granddaughter would be able to as well. But that's now a sucker's bet. Um, you know, all bets are off in, in that kind of way. And I think that that's a very, very new and difficult position for humans to be in. I think it's one of the things that's most debilitating about climate change, truthfully. What we need is to understand that our civilization needs to take as the lens through which it views the world no longer a kind of fixation on economic growth, but now a kind of fixation on survivability and sustainability. And it'll take people from every profession doing that. More, it'll take everyone after hours and on weekends behaving like citizens, you know, taking part in the the kind of movements we need to to make these things happen. But I'm not um, I, I'm not despairing, as we said at the beginning. Um, we're obviously going to see a lot of damage. Uh, the world is going to be a different and lesser place. It already is. But um, we're also beginning to rise to the occasion and demonstrating not just the dangers, but the usefulness of the uh, large brain. Uh, and perhaps large hearts that we have. So it'll be a very fascinating and interesting next few decades too. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, you you work a lot with with young people, with students, uh, especially in, in the divestment campaign. And I'm curious, what thoughts have you come away with seeing them as they're just about to embark into the world based on this this new context? Yeah, I mean, I work entirely almost with young people. We've founded 350.org with myself and seven college undergraduates. And I confess, I don't really think of them very often as young people. They're just, you know, colleagues. Um, But look, young people are scared and worried about all this as they should be. They're going to have, I'm going to be, you know, dead in 20 years. So I will have uh, gotten to live much of my life in a world not completely discombobulated by climate change. But if we go down the path we're currently on, that won't be true of today's young people. They'll be in the prime of their careers dealing with this dislocation on a massive scale. So it's appropriate that, that they're in the forefront of this fight around the world. I, I think that's one of the things that gives me great hope, the power that, with which they pursue it and uh, the clear-headedness with which they go after it. They're not trying to change every aspect of the culture in which we live uh, in the kind of fashion of people in the 60s. They're trying to stand up to power and uh, economic power especially and reshape that part of the world in a way that works. I mean, look, people in the 60s did an awful lot of the cultural and social work that we needed and it frees us up to deal with the physics. I think one of the more at least theoretically beneficial things about climate change in terms of confronting it is that, you know, it, it unites all of us, even, you know, even the wealthy live in New York, even even the wealthy are, are going to be threatened by rising waters or by drought. That's right. They don't call it global warming for nothing. That's very true. Has there been any examples in the work uh, you've been doing with 350.org where you've seen unlikely alliances that have given you hope? Well, we sort of build these alliances all over the world. We'll do these days of action, and there'll be, you know, 5,000, 6,000 simultaneous demonstrations from, you know, deep in the Maasai heartland in Kenya to, you know, in the middle of Fifth Avenue. 
and everybody feels as if they're part of the same operation. They have the same message, the same understanding of where we need to go. You know, last fall, while people were marching in New York, our teams across the Pacific were building uh, traditional canoes on you know 12 of those islands that nations that may disappear this century, Vanuatu, Tuvalu. Uh, they took those canoes and used them to blockade the largest coal port in the world in Australia. It was a powerful, magnificent, symbolic blow against the biggest coal exporter in the world and a huge help in this fight to reorient Australia from a carbon villain into a country that makes use of its um, enormous reserves of sun and wind and tide and all the things that should be powering its future. You know, the same kind of thing going on in every corner of the planet. Amazing organizing in Southern Africa to move people straight to renewable energy. Amazing organizing in India to block the rise of coal power and spread renewables as fast as can be. It's beautiful to watch all over the planet. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Paris. Later this year, we're coming up on the UN-sponsored climate change conference in, in Paris, sort of the follow-up from Copenhagen. Um, what, do, what do you see as either the, the meaning or non-meaning of, of that? Like how, how much weight are you putting into Paris? Well, Copenhagen was obviously a complete disaster and fiasco, the worst diplomatic failure since Munich. Nothing happened because there was no movement on the ground in any of these countries to, I mean, by itself, the UN process is meaningless. It's just a reflection of uh, how much work and pressure there is back home on these governments. And so, you know, in the intervening five years, we've built big movements around the world. I think Paris will go better than Copenhagen. I don't think it will solve the problem. I think it's one step along the way. I think the most important question to be solved there is whether we can find sufficient financing in the rich world to allow the poor world to leapfrog fossil fuel and go straight to renewable energy. That's the thing that I'm going to be most focused on when I'm there. And can you just explain what what exactly is going to be happening at Paris? Lots of countries around the world meeting to come up with some yet another agreement on what to do about climate change. It's not going to be a binding agreement, so it shouldn't be that hard of negotiation. Um, they're basically just showing up to promise things, and um, nobody's signing on any dotted line, really. So it's in many ways a step backward in ambition from where we were in the past, but that's that's what's going on. Uh, whatever happens at Paris, you know, we'll need for many, many years to come a movement that's pushing ever harder. Uh, because it's not going to come anywhere near the scale or pace of action we need to hold climate change to a workable level. Nobody does anything for free. Um, the fact that there's a uh, you know that, that there's a horrible problem to be solved doesn't seem to motivate politicians to solve it. Only the fact that there's real pressure to do something motivates people. And now there's some pressure, so maybe. Paris won't be as bad as Copenhagen, which was pretty bad. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but for for individuals, especially uh, for those who, who don't exactly know how they fit in, who have maybe had that feeling, oh, I changed my light bulbs, what more can I do? What what would your message be after after the past few years? Well, this is the right place to end. I mean, the, the message is, uh, as an individual, you're basically powerless against climate change. So our job is to become 
you know, the most important thing an individual can do is not be an individual. It's to join together with other people. That's why we set up 350.org, and that's why so many other people are organizing, and that's why if we win, we're going to win. Um, so now is the moment. If you've been keeping your powder dry for some reason, now is the moment for the fight. And it's a good reminder that uh, the other side looks all-powerful until you begin to push. And then if you push hard enough, you got a chance. Uh, no guarantees we're going to win, but there is a guarantee now we're going to fight, and that's really good. Well, Bill McKibben, I really appreciate uh, all the, the work you've personally done on, on this issue and through uh, 350.org, and I uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Back at you, brother. Thank you for your good work, and, uh, and keep it up, and we'll see you in Paris. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Fantastic. Okay. That was my conversation with Bill McKibben, author, activist, and founder of 350.org. Well, that's all for The Elephant this episode. The Elephant is made possible with funding by the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners with Patrick Chadwick and executive producer Matthias Gutz. A special thanks this week to J.P. Davidson, as well as Christina Peters and Stefan Lischka. You can find The Elephant at elephantpodcast.org, and there will be posting extended versions of our interviews and some bonus content that we weren't able to fit in today. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. And if you like the show, please help us spread the word. If you could rate us or write us a review in iTunes, it would be a big help. I'm Kevin Kaners. I'll see you in two weeks' time.